Well, if you don't have a Bible open in front of you, open it with me to that passage, to 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1075. 1075. If you're new to the Bible, uh, it will help you to have it open. It's a, it's a little bit of a longer passage this morning, and the large number is the, is the chapter, small number is the verses. So 10, 25, those are the verses we're going to look at this morning. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we pray now that you would open your word to us and us to your word. God, we pray that Jesus would be large that he would capture us and we would follow him. That you would do this by the work of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Hank Williams Jr., 1979, released one of his top four songs of his career, Family Tradition. And the chorus has this, uh, this, this repeated Uh, chorus that comes up through the song that everyone remembers. Hank, why do you drink? Hank, why do you roll smoke? Why must you live out the songs that you wrote? He says, if I'm down in a honky-tonk and some old slick's trying to give me friction, I'll say, leave me alone. I'm just singing all night long because it's a family tradition. That was Hank Williams Jr.'s rebellion song to sort of establish himself of why he's not in the same tradition as his father, and yet he is in the same tradition in his ultimate rebellion in his life. He's living out a family tradition, and all of us do that to one degree or another. And the passage this morning is calling us to live out our new family tradition. If you take notes, this is what God is saying to us. He's saying, if you belong to God, then you should live as his child. If you belong to God, live as his child. We started this series in 1 Peter, and Peter has been reminding exiles who live as exiles in their hometowns. They're strangers on the streets that they grew up in because they've been born again. They, they follow, they have a new father, they have a, a new family, they have a new way of thinking, a new way of living, and it puts them at odds with their own culture. So he's been writing to them and reminding them, you've been born again by God's gracious activity, and this was not coincidental or accidental, but this was by God's own choosing. He made us new as his family. And all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, have worked together from eternity past to accomplish what it is we are in Christ now today. They have worked together to bring us to this new state of having a living hope and having an inheritance. The inheritance that God gives of his own possessions, of himself, of heaven itself, That he keeps in heaven, he reserves, and he guards us while we're on earth until we get the inheritance. He's doing all of this. He has made us secure in Jesus. So he's writing to remind people who are insecure in their culture, in their own country, of the security that they have in God through Jesus. In this text, Peter says that we should live in light of this. So again, if you belong to God, you should live as his child. Well, how should we live? There's, there's four ways this passage gives us to live. Here's, here's, here's what they are. We should live in hope. Live in hope. That's verse 13. The second way that this passage tells us to live is that we should live in holiness. We should live in holiness. That's verses 14 through 16. So live in hope, live in holiness. And the third one is live in reverence. Live in reverence. Verses 17 to 21. And then the fourth way that we're told to live is that we should love the family. We should love the family. So live in hope, live in holiness, live in reverence, and love the family. Verses 22 to 25. 
Now, before we see these, let's look at the foundation that, that all these ways of living are set on. There's a foundation for living that's given in verses 10 through 11. Look at what it says there. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Peter has been reminding them of their incredible salvation. The things we've just said in verses 1 and 2, he reminds them that they were chosen by God, that the Spirit sanctified them. And, and, and the Spirit took the blood that Jesus shed on the cross and he sprinkled them clean. And that birthed them into a new birth, into a living hope with an inheritance that's kept in heaven while they're guarded here on earth. And this is their salvation. It's been given to them. It's their standing in Christ. They belong to God. They're in God's family. And what's coming at the end of their life, at the end of time when Jesus is revealed in all of his glory, is the fullness of what God has promised and the fullness of what he's been doing. This is what he's talking about. So you notice at the end of verse 9, he says, because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So you know, as a a good Bible student, that we're, we're, as Christians, we say that we have been saved. So we've been forgiven of past sins and we're brought into the family of God. But we're being saved. We're being transformed. We're being changed. We're growing up into our salvation. We belong to God now, so now we're, we're growing into it. We're looking more and more like what it is to be someone saved. So saved and being saved. But we're also going to be saved in the future. All of this has to be brought to completion. It's not done. This isn't the end. And so when he says in verse 9, you're going to receive the goal, he's talking about the fullness of what God began in eternity past when he chose us in Christ. And so verse 10 begins concerning this salvation. This salvation is the whole thing. Concerning the whole package. (laughs) We have an incredible salvation, he says. But remember, these people are living like exiles. They don't feel like they're the saved of God. They don't feel like chosen in their society. They're people who have a season still to live as strangers. Notice what he says in verse 17, towards the end of it. He says, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. So they're not home yet. We're not home yet. We have a season where we have to live in this life, in the circumstances that we're in, with the life that we have, and we have to live out the salvation that we've, that we've received and the one that we're waiting on. So until then, we're, we're strangers just like them. So how should they live? Well, you can imagine in that context, as maybe perhaps you have felt as well, you can easily start to think that it would have been better to live in another era. If you, if you like history, you, 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 you love history in part because it's fun to imagine what it would have been like to be back there. And there's probably a favorite era. You'd say, if I could live at this time, I, I, I would, I would love, love to live then. And everybody likes to wonder, well, what, what would be the best time to live? Perhaps if we lived when Israel was, was the majority people, maybe they thought. You know, now we're Gentiles. We've bought into the Jewish Messiah. We're following him and we're in our own culture and they don't like us anymore. It would have been nice to be just an Israelite in Israel when David was king. That'd be pretty good. Or maybe if I lived in the time of Elijah. When, when Elijah was resurrecting deceased children. When he was making bread last in a famine. When Elijah could say it's not going to rain. Or he calls down fire. That would have been a good time to live. Because that would firm up your faith. And you could just go see the prophet when you're struggling. Or maybe if we weren't human at all. If I was just an angel. 
I was unaffected by the things on earth. And I, I could just watch from a distance and just, just peer into it. No. Look at the way Peter directs their attention. He says all of history has been moving towards this moment when Jesus is revealed as the Savior. And God's eternal plan is played out for all to see. That's, that's the gist of what he's getting at when he points out in verse 10, concerning the salvation of the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, searched and inquired carefully. Elijah himself, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, these prophets, as they wrote about the glories of the coming Messiah, as they wrote them down, they themselves asked, when will this happen? Because they hadn't received it. They longed to peer into it and to understand it in the hopes that it would be for them. You remember what he said to Daniel at the end of the book of Daniel in chapter 12, the last verses. God says to Daniel, but you go your way. Shut these things up in the book. Seal them. They are not for you. Therefore, the latter time you are going to live your life. And you're going to die and you're going to go with your ancestors. But in the end, you will be resurrected and then you will get your inheritance. He told Daniel, not for you. After he revealed the whole thing to him. That's what he's talking about. And at the end of verse 12, notice that he says, angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Angels themselves wonder at the salvation that God is accomplishing and promises through Jesus. From whatever heavenly perch they have, they peer over and they long, he says, they they want to understand it. When will it happen? What's it like to be saved from sin and not cast out into utter darkness? Why would God, the Holy One, save anybody? What is this? Angels long to look at it. But look at what he says in verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you. So all of the things that God has been doing in the past, through the prophets, through the Exodus, through Moses, the Ten Commandments, the whole thing has been moving and pointing to the time when the Gentiles would hear God's Messiah is Jesus of Nazareth. When the whole world would hear the announcement, Jesus is God's son. And God, who we are estranged from, receives sinners back through him. All of it's been moving in that direction. And he says, now it's been revealed to you. There's been a change in time and circumstances in the economy of God. And we're in the now part. Now he says one more thing. You know, people today, I heard this on CNBC this week about chat GPT and barred AI. They said, it's a great time to be alive with all this innovation. And it's true with technology and the way EVs and all these other things are coming online. And, and this in, incredible technology, it's, for, for those of us living today, we look back and it, it's kind of like, you know, for us, it's like living in the Rockefeller era or the Tesla era, you know, the first Tesla, the the, the man Tesla, who, as they're discovering electricity and they're, and, they're, and they're putting it in homes. And here we are on the verge of those things and going to space for vacation. It's a pretty exciting time to live in. But when you think about how much better others had it, you think, oh, oh if I was just them, if I was just in Israel, if I was there when Jesus was walking around. But you know the best time to be alive The best time to be alive, according to this verse, is whenever you can hear the gospel and be saved. Whatever era anybody has ever lived in, the best time to be alive is the time when the gospel is announced that Jesus is the Savior. And that you can hear it and believe on it. And receive the salvation that God has promised that extends all the way into eternity. That's the best time to be alive. And you are sitting here today, right now, hearing this good news announced to you. 
But it's not just now that he directs their attention to. He wants them to realize the nowness of things is important for them. But it's not just that. He wants them to realize that God has done all of this for them. Which means for us, it means for you. Look look at the way that he highlights this. Again, verse 12, he says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. Now just let that sink in. Daniel was serving you. Isaiah was serving you. Moses was serving you. They were laboring for the Lord. They were writing and obeying and seeking the salvation that was to come. And they were doing this and preserving it for you. So that you would sit here today with an open Bible and an open ear and hear about Jesus and believe on him and receive what God has promised. That's incredible. It's not just that God chose you, sanctified you, and sprinkled you. He directed past events in history And the Holy Spirit directed communication in previous people and previous generations. And he preserved it for us in the process of bringing Jesus to us and us to Jesus. That's incredible. And look at how it shows up through this whole passage. I'm going to mention verses and I want to show you the you. And I'm going to give you the verse. So just let your eye follow through that. Verse 10 He mentions the grace that would come to you. Verse 12, these things have now been announced to you. Verse 13, the grace to be brought to you. Verse 20, Jesus is revealed in these last times for you. Verse 25, this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. From eternity past, God's electing love, working throughout time to bring all of this to you right now. Peter writes to exiles who feel like strangers. And he says, listen, God has brought all of this to you right now and you live at the best time to be alive because you hear about Jesus. Now, what's the impact of this? Twofold. Because he's writing to people who feel the impact of the fallenness of the world, the ills, the difficulty, the exile status, sin everywhere, war, earthquakes, crazy ideas... The impact of to you is that they are loved by God and rescued by him. And he's coming for them. So that's the impact for you and me. You're loved by God. You're rescued by him and he's coming for you. The second way that this impacts us is that everything has been working towards this. They're not worse off, but they're better off from, from those who came before. So, so the feeling of being in exile, the feeling of experiencing being canceled is not fun. Nobody wants that. But being in Jesus, he's reminding them that that's the best place to be. And so we need to be reminded of that. What we have is better. Okay, so, so that's the foundation. He lays that down and he reminds them of this and he holds that out and he says, okay, so given all of this, look at the first word in verse 13, therefore. Okay, so so given that foundation, how do we live? Four imperatives. The first one is that we should live in hope. We should live in hope. Look at verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope is that beautiful thing that's always looking forward. Hope. Lou Zamperini famously uh, taught about how hope kept him alive. Lou Zamperini was a, uh, a pilot in World War II who was shot down. And the odds of being recovered once shot down over the Pacific were very low. 
And yet somehow, miraculously, unlike others who were shot down with him, he survived 47 days at sea. 47 days on a raft. During that time, the thing that kept him going was the hope that someone would rescue him. Now, at the end of those 47 days, you can imagine his excitement when he sees a boat in the horizon, but it was the Japanese army. And he was captured, and he spent 30 months in a torturous prison camp under the influence of a man who had it out for him, who in particular wanted him to suffer. And he wrote about, he survived it, and he wrote about it later. He, later he was saved. He was not a Christian at the time, but he survived through all of that. And he, he talked about how those who gave up hope, those who started to say, they're not coming for us. They're no, as soon as they started to give up hope, they began to die. And slowly, they did die. But he and a few others never gave up hope. Even in the midst of torture, even in the midst of starving situation, even after 30 months in a, prison of, a, pr- a prisoner camp. He continued to believe someone's coming for me. That's the power of hope. Hope literally kept him and his friends alive that were around him. Well, we as Christians have, have a real hope. We have a hope that he said is alive in verse 3. Remember that? He says we've been begotten again to a living hope. It's a hope that's alive. It's a hope that is focused on something that is powerful. So your hope really matters a lot, and people today are very positive on hope. Uh, But usually hope is just sort of like wishful thinking, right? Like hope that things will get better because they've got to get better. But notice that there's an object here. He has something very definite in mind for us to fix our hope on. Look at what he says again. He says, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. We have a forward-looking faith that is looking out through time, and we know what, what comes at the end of that tunnel. It's Jesus himself in all of his glory, revealed with his angels and all of his people, glorified in his presence forever. And on that day, the fullness of the grace of God will be given and there'll be no more waiting. The whole thing will be finished. There's no more forward hope because it will be in our possession. The thing that we expect that's been promised will be ours tangibly on that day. And that's what we live waiting for. Why put up with the ills of this world? Why put up with exile status? Why be a stranger in our own country? Well, because we have something coming. Jesus is coming. The grace of God that in its fullness to complete our salvation is coming with him. So he says, set your hope completely on that grace. Notice that he has to tell us completely. Because I think a lot of us like to, we, we, we have that sort of in our back pocket. Like, yeah, that's out there somewhere. But what I really want is that new job. What I'm really hoping for is a, is a, is a relationship. What, what would really make me happy, what would get me to that day, is if I just had more money or I didn't lose the money that I've got. Or if I just had and you fill in that blank. That's where our hope is often centered on. And he says, no, 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 it has to be completely on the grace that, that's going to be brought to you. We have to set our minds on the fact that Jesus is coming, and that has to shape everything else. You ever stop to think about what God's goal is in this whole thing for you personally? Have you thought about that God has a goal that you would live by hope? That your life would be shaped by hope. That the way you talk would be full of hope. Now, I'm not saying, you know, Hope, hope the way that people just describe it. You know, just, just like, I'm, I'm hoping I get better. I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping I'm, I have better health next year. That's fine to hope for. But that hope can't, can't there's no guarantee of that hope. And, and that hope is often disappointing. And that hope, even if you get what you, you're longing for, it, it comes to, to, to an end when it's, when it's brought to you. But the hope that we have in Jesus is an eternal hope that that surpasses all other kinds of hopes. 
God has a goal for you that you would hope in him. Now, he has some qualifications here. Notice the qualifications. He says, first, with your minds ready for action. The the phrase is literally that Old Testament phrase, gird up your loins. And it's it's a word picture of a man in in a long robe who's now either needing to work hard or he's going to run. And the robe's going to trip you up, right? So, so you need to gird it up. You need to pick it up and tuck it into your belt and cinch the belt down so that now you can get down with it. You, you, can, you can run and win and compete, or you can lift the stone and put it in place, or whatever task that was at hand, you had to gird up the, the ends of your, your clothing so that they didn't get in your way. He applies that to our minds. So the English translation likes to, likes to help us to say, with your minds ready for action. right? So it's a, it's a word picture that we have to let our minds be shaped by the coming grace and let that guard us to get ready for the action that we're going to be called to do by faith in this life. He has another word here. He call, it's the word sober-minded. Now, he doesn't merely mean uh, not being drunk. It, the, 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 the idea of sobriety, we, we immediately go there and think of that. Of course, that's the picture. But what he means is, is that when we live in this, in this life, we often, we often let everything else just sort of cloud our thinking. We're sort of drunk on the world. So we have all these cares, we have these anxieties, we have these hopes, we have these distractions, good things, oftentimes, that just distract. Remember, Jesus talks about the cares of this life that can distract and rob you of the gospel. He's, he's saying here that we should be sober-minded, which means we should, we should let the truth of the gospel, the grace that's coming to us, make our minds sharp. So as you look out into the world and you look out into the circumstances of this life, you interpret them through the grace that's coming. You let that make you sober in the things that you look at and the way that you think. How much of our depression is looking back, looking down, or believing tomorrow's not going to be different or better? Or just embracing a narrative that this is just the way it is? What if your depression encountered a living hope that's set out in front of you on the grace that's going to be brought when Jesus shows up? What would your depression say to that? How could that shape the way that you deal with past failures? You see, the grace that's coming looks forward. It doesn't look back on past sin. It doesn't look back on yesterday's failures and the thing you didn't mean to say and that you wish you hadn't done. It doesn't dwell there. It gives that to Jesus and it looks forward to the grace that's coming. Just like everything else in God's work, has been brought to us. Notice there's one more description here. He says, completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even that final grace is something God brings. We don't bring that. We don't even bring ourselves to that. It's a coming grace that's in the hands of God, that's on its way, and it's being brought to us. That's something you can hope in. But listen, this is, this is not mind over matter. Uh, when, when you're on the golf course, a good friend will, will, will tell you, stop thinking bad thoughts. You're like, I, I, I'm horrible at this game. I'm never going to hit this tee shot straight. Good friends around you are going to say, stop. You can't talk like that. And you go, come on. I, you know, I'm not a word faith guy, so I don't believe that by saying that, that I've made my ball go right. And that's true. But the reality is, is if you start to think that way, then you start to swing like that. And then you carry that attitude with you to your next ball. And so good friends remind you, you don't think that way. Well, this is sort of like the gospel's way of shaping the way you approach those things in your next ball. But this is not mind over matter. This is grace over time. Grace is coming to you. Jesus is bringing it at the revelation, and so we have to live with our minds set on that. We live by hope. We also live in holiness. 
Another way you could say, this is the second thing, exhortation here, that the, 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 another way you could say it is that God wants us to be shaped by our Father. Let your life, your character, your conduct be shaped by our Father. Now, why would I change holy to be shaped? Look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. God calls us to holiness and he roots it in who he is. Now, I'm saying, let God shape who you are. How do these things come together? Well, we are to be holy. Holy means two things that are really two sides of the same coin. It means to be purified by being separated from sin. When God called Israel to leave their idolatry, he called them to leave other idolaters and the idols in the process. You remember when they were in Egypt, he says, he says, bring my people out from among them. And the idea of coming out from among them is, is all through the scriptures as God continually calls people to leave the world, leave the desires of the world, the impulses of the world, the longings of the world, come out of it. Come out of it, he says. This is the call to holiness. So the idea is to forsake sin and this is part of holiness. And we'll see this clear in just a second. But the other idea is, is it, that, that's sort of the negative side. Leave, leave sin. But there's a positive side to holiness. The other side of the coin. And it's to dedicate yourself to God. So you don't just drop things. And, and you just don't do these things anymore. But if you come to Christ, you actually reorient towards God. You remember what he said to the Thessalonians? He said, you turned from serving idols to serve the living God. They turned away from idols towards God. So holiness has to do with forsaking sin and turning towards God to dedicate yourself to him, to whoever he is, whatever he reveals about himself, whatever he says to you in your life through his word. So throughout the Old Testament, for example, ordinary utensils uh, were made holy because they were given for temple use. So you could have two bowls that that one potter made. One of them goes to his house. The other one goes to the temple. Well, the one that goes to his house is not holy. But the one that goes to the temple is holy because it's dedicated to God. So if you're a Christian, if you're someone who follows Jesus, what what this verse is saying, Peter is urging us, he's saying, see yourself as someone who's been dedicated to the Lord. You've been handed over to him and you want to be used by him. And if, if that's your heart's desire, if, if, you, if you are dedicated to him, it's going to change the way you live. You're going to live differently. You're going to grow in holiness. So it's a two-sided coin of holiness. Okay, how so? Well, look at verse 14 again. He says, as obedient children. This is where this theme of a family tradition is, is being picked up and, and runs throughout this whole Thing. You remember God has brought us into his family. We said that to be chosen in verse 1 means to be in his people, to be a part of his people, the, the objects of his name and his affection that he becomes our father. He, the, verse 3 reminded us that we've been born again. So it's the language of birth there. And here we're about to see in verse 17, notice what it says there, if you appeal to the father who judges impartially. This is all family language. So verse 14 says, as obedient children. This is getting at the way that little kids look up to and respect and mimic their father so as to be like him. Peter is telling us to be obedient to our real father. Not merely our heavenly father, or our earthly father, but our heavenly one. And act like one of his kids. So it says, be holy as he is holy. Do what dad does. This is essentially what it means to be dedicated to God. Now, there's some negative ways that, that show up here that help us flesh this out. Notice how he says, don't be, verse 14 again, don't be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. So he says, desires, former, and ignorance. Desires are our passions, excuse me, or our internal impulses. 
It's like, do what feels good. He says, don't do that anymore. Don't live by just whatever thought comes into your mind, whatever, whatever impulse your heart has, whatever uh, desire that you, you find that you just, just comes out of you. He's saying, we don't, we don't live that way anymore. Why? Well, because those were based on our former life, the old life that we inherited from our culture, and they were based on ignorance, namely ignorance of God. It should remind you of another verse, uh, Romans, Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, in light of the mercies of God, no longer be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now notice there in Romans, the same thing. You, you, you have this call not to be conformed to the world, but instead to be transformed. And the mind is a very important part of that. Our minds have to be renewed because when we grow up in this culture, we embrace implicitly the things of this culture. We hear the messaging of it. We see it. We, we want to be a part of it we, just naturally without even thinking about it. That's the way we, we live. We want to fit in with our friends. You want to be a part of the team. You want to sound like other people. So we all just naturally sort of like fall into that flow. But that, that flow is one based on impulses, ignorance, and a former way of life. But if you are in Jesus, he says, don't be conformed to the desires of your flesh. Greeks, interestingly, recognized that by living, living by innate passions alone was debasing to humanity. So all kinds of philosophies just before the era that this was written in emerged in trying to figure out how to overcome the innate desires of the flesh. Uh, Stoics said that you had to just sort of go along with whatever and sort of be neutral. Uh, Aristotelian uh, virtue ethics arose where the idea was uh, create virtues that emerged out of culture that we said these things are virtues and these things are vices and the best way to live is to, is to be a virtuous person. Obviously, there's some value to that. But of course, the problem is, is that those virtues are just coming from whatever society thinks at that time. And those things are always changing, just like they change in our own culture. What, what was it like to be a virtuous person in America 50 years ago? What's it like to be a virtuous person by culture standards today? It, it's, it's always in flux and moving and shaping. All of those things are, are, are sort of are also based on ignorance, also based on desire, except they're just sort of like the culture's desires. No, in, as a Christian, we, we don't let our desires shape us. We have to let God shape us. Being dedicated to God means not letting the world conform us anymore. Now, you, you already know this, but our world lives in the exact reverse of this verse. The, the world, if it were writing a Bible, would say, As obedient children, be conformed to the impulses and desires that you think that your real identity is. That's what this verse would say according to the American Bible. And what's, what's offered through that, what's, what's proclaimed through that, is that through that you'll find real freedom. But the reality is, is that you find real slavery. If you live that way, you are subject to whatever feelings pop up today. Whatever, whatever's driving you. And we all know circumstances drive a lot of the feelings that we have. And so as our circumstances change, our feelings will change. Now you're told, you and I are told, that if we do this, we'll find freedom and we'll find our real self and we'll live happy. You tell me. How's it working? Does our society seem very happy? Does our society seem whole? Does our society, despite all of the virtue signaling, seem virtuous? No. Every one of us who lives by the impulses of our mind and our emotions and our feelings, we're, you're a slave. And the people who tell you to live that way are encouraging you to continue to be a slave. Because they want you to be just like them. And the goal of the whole thing is just liberty. It's this idea of, of, of that, that the more liberty I have, the more society is progressing. But underneath what's called liberty is really just rebellion. This is the heart of sin. The heart of the world is to say to God, we don't want your way of living. 
We don't care that you're holy. We don't want it. And so the, the, the call to live by desire and impulse and instinct is a call to do whatever you feel that is different from what God says. It's slavery. You think you're free, but you're really not. Jesus is calling you to something else. Jesus is calling you to live dedicated to God and let him shape who you are. And if you're dedicated to God, you're going to be holy. So we should live with our hope. We should live by hope. We should live holy. We should live with reverence. Verse 17, if you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. He's just already said that we should be holy in all of our conduct. So in some ways, this is just another way of saying the same thing. But the difference here is that this has to do with your attitude that shapes your conduct. So in being holy, we're looking to God and we're dedicating ourselves to him. Here, we're living with an awareness of his presence and the fact that we're headed to him. Jesus is coming to us with the grace that's going to be brought at the revelation. And as time moves towards him, we are all moving towards the day when you will stand before God Almighty and you will look him in the eye and his holiness will pierce to the depths of your soul. And he will see everything that you've, you yourself have not even seen about yourself. If we call on him as our father, he says, well, then we should live with reverence. You know, this is kind of like the, the idea of, you know, when, when you got in trouble at school for acting like a fool. And, and, and your mom or dad had to be called in the middle of the day. I know this, none of you guys, this happened to and they show up and, you know, they have to uh, endure the embarrassment of that moment. Mm-hmm, I understand. I cannot believe that he said that to you. Uh, I promise we have raised him not to say these things. I promise you. And then you get in that car. And what does mom say? I raised you better than this. You do not act this way. Right? Or maybe some of you had dads that said, hey, you remember whose name you carry when you walk out that door? You got my name. <laughs> and so when you're out there doing stuff, you remember that you represent me too. Right? This is similar to that. If you call on God as Father, and, and our Father is the judge, all caps, and he doesn't show partiality, do you think his kids can get away with murder? No. All of us are still going to stand before the Lord. All of us are going to have our works weighed in front of him. And the faith that we profess is going to be proven by the life that we live. Now, if that's true and you know that and you know that God judges impartially, then you know that God calls you to live a life that is reverent, a life that's aware that we will see him, that he's here with us now, that he is our father, but he's the judge that judges impartially. Now, there's a lot of ways that the Bible emphasizes the fear of the Lord. This is what we're describing here is the fear of the Lord. There's a lot of ways that the fear of the Lord is described. And the fear of the Lord ultimately should be, should be something that we take joy in. Because if he's really our father, then he, we're not thinking of him as the almighty judge as as our, as our first thought we're thinking of him as father who is the almighty judge right we're in jesus who is the almighty judge and so if you're in him that that reshapes your view of the whole thing but if he's really your father then you you, you want to please him you want to live a life by faith that reflects his nature in this life and you do it in this hostile world. That's what he says. 
Remember what God said to Israel. He said that their own judges couldn't show favoritism. He told them in Deuteronomy 16, appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God has given you. They shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe binds, blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. He ties our time here in this life as strangers to the time when we're going to see him as judge. And so if you're his child, then you live out the, the, the gospel that's been delivered to us. And notice the way he anchors this in verse 18. Because you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things, verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. You're covered by the blood of Jesus. The price of redemption was the blood of the Son of God. That's why you live holy. That's why you want to live with a reverential fear towards God. It's also why we live a life of hope. There's one more thing here that he calls us to, and that is that we would love the family. The exhortation, the last one that he gives us here is in verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22. He says, since you've purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart, love one another constantly. It's that call to love the the brethren. Verse 22 is a long, complex sentence, but the imperative is real simple. Love one another and do it constantly. It's rooted in the purifying grace of the gospel, and its character, he says, should be consistent and genuine. The Father wants us to hold one another in each other's hearts consistently. So, true to the theme, we have a Father who's brought us into his family, He's birthed us as his children. He's given us an inheritance that he holds for us. He calls us as obedient children to live like his kids, to be holy and live in fear. And then he says, and love your brothers and sisters. Because I've made a whole family. I've brought brought this family together and I've put you in it. And I want you to look around and I want you to see one another. And I want you to take care of each other. Love one another consistently. I was with some brothers recently on a trip and... One of our brothers was, uh, we'll say, being himself and sort of giving others a hard time and laughing a lot and at times maybe acting crazy. And I said to Bob, Bob, you know, you, you, can, you can pick your friends. Uh, you, you can't pick your family, but you, you can pick your friends. And I just want to leave you with that. As a good pastor, I was just trying to encourage, encourage my brother and say, you know, you really want to th- rethink these friends you've got. And this person who remained nameless said, yeah, but can you say that about church family? How, how does that work? And he, he's right. God has put us in this family. And you know, 20, at least 22 times in the New Testament, we are told to love one another. Just go to BibleGateway.com and just type in love one another and see the verse and just read the verses that pop up uh, with that phrase. It's overwhelming. And as the New Testament continues to repeat this phrase, love one another, it keeps appealing back to Jesus. Jesus gives the command in John 13, 35, right? By this, the world will know that you are my disciples by the way in which you love one another. And all the gospel writers keep pointing back to that and say, love each other, love each other, love each other. And throughout, throughout the whole uh, New Testament, it gives us all kinds of ways that we do this. You say, how do you, how do you love each other? Well, in chapter 3 of this very book, it's in verses 8 and 9, love one another is paired with sympathy towards each other. It's paired with compassion and humility. And then verse 9, it pairs it with giving a blessing to each other. In chapter 4, verse 8, it says that we should love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. When you and I mess up, and we say that accidental thing that got you upset, or we failed you in some way, or we disappointed you and we didn't live up to our calling, love covers that. It's love that says, hey, it's okay. It's it's all right. I forgive you, brother. I forgive you, sister. We're told to love one another and bear one another's burdens. 
And love goes way beyond all of that, right? Love looks like making a meal for somebody that happens all the time in this church when somebody's in need. It looks like babysitting when somebody's struggling to have childcare while they take their other kid to another appointment. It, it, it looks like writing a note in a, uh, or making a phone call when you know somebody's struggling. Or it looks like some, two sisters texting me this week saying that they're fasting for another woman in this church as, as they go through a hard time. It looks like when Kevin started having trouble and people immediately started bringing food over and helping, helping them to try to relieve some of the burden. Or taking someone's kid to their ball game to just try to love each other. It's, it's love in the family where we take care of each other. That's what we're being called to. He tells us all of this because the seed that has birthed us is not perishable. Those last verses that focus on the word of God are really telling us about how the birth that God's given us in the gospel is an eternal birth. He says, all grass, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass and the grass withers and the flower falls. This is literally just saying, when, you're, when your mom and dad gave birth to you, they gave birth to someone who's going to die. The, the, the life we live, we're thankful for it. But it's passing. It is perishable. But the seed that God planted to cause new birth will never die. Because it's the word of God. And look at the last line. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. When God announced from heaven that Jesus is his son, he's the Messiah who sacrificed outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and raised from the dead for sinners, that message is an eternal seed that causes new birth that takes us all the way into eternity. That's incredible. And so in light of that, he says, brothers and sisters, if you belong to God, live like his children. Live like his children. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to grow up as your kids. To be your children. Father, we pray that we live by the hope that you've you've birthed in us. That we live as holy. We live as reverent. And God, we live loving each other. In Jesus' name, amen.